who knows what actually happened in history but i felt like i had to i had to go with something that brought me to a place uh regardless of what was written down because we know that that's all, all histories are partial and all thinking has holes in it all paradigms are incomplete and you don't know that until you you know get to some other paradigm that enfolds this other one where you can see it's I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. What did you know about ice cream before someone told you about it? Or applesauce, dogs, thunderstorms, cashmere sweaters, or tulips? How do we know anything apart from the stories, the definitions, and the accumulation of labels that we attach to experience? How often do you engage the object of your attention without a running commentary of comparison, judgment, desire, or for that matter, aversion? What does it feel like to, for a moment, drop what you're telling yourself about your unfolding experience and simply inhabit the actual experience yourself? How is it for you to suspend the ongoing storyline, if even for just the space of a few breaths, to observe the running commentary and the opinions, the nattering voices of your mother, the evening news something you read in an eight-bullet-point list of must-dos from the internet, and the entire cacophony of other people's descriptions of the world that have also become your own. Where are you without the comfort and familiarity of your story? Who are you if you're not that shy kid who got dropped off to nursery school wondering what did you do to deserve excommunication from the comfort of your home? Who are you if you're not that person who was the top of your class, or the type A businessman who could always make it rain, or the dutiful daughter who could not raise her voice. It is so easy to mistake the cherry-picked moments of history and imagination for who we truly are. Our descriptions of the world blind us to the world. We have a feeling or a thought about the actions of somebody we care about, and we use it as proof about how we think they are, and who we think we are. Can you look in the mirror without commenting to yourself, "Mm, too much of this or too little of that? What do you know about anything beyond what you tell yourself about it? I'm not suggesting the stories we tell ourselves are a problem or aren't somehow trustworthy, although that indeed could be the case. I'm more concerned with telling a more textured and nuanced story. One that includes both sides of an argument. One that brings in the perspective of the spider living in your houseplant, the songbirds in your backyard, or the maple serenading you with its scarlet song of fall. What I'm most curious about is the way the telling of the past shifts the present and how that can set a new trajectory for the future. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website 
to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. What are the bounds of the possible and how do we determine what is and is not within the range of capability? Our practices give us the opportunity to discover not just how medicine works, but how we work with it. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation with Ben Hawes on some discoveries that he's made, both with his hands-on acupuncture, but also something he's discovered about engaging the mind and how that seems to help people, even if he can't put his hands on them. It's altogether a curious thing and something he's both surprised and skeptical about even as he finds himself in the midst of these experiences. You know, 
It's true that our practices become our teachers. It can be surprising what we discover along the way. Let's listen into some of what Ben has discovered. Ben Hawes, welcome to Geological. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. There are a number of things that I'm excited to talk with you about today. One is the acupuncture that you do and some innovative and unique ways that you have of looking at and palpating, not the belly, but the vertebral spine to get some information. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking with you about that. And I'm also looking forward to getting into... Yeah, the word esoteric floats around in my mind, but I always get nervous around that word. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it usually involves a whole lot of numbers and theories. So I'm not usually about that. So uh, it might be less intimidating than you might think. So Okay, well, we're going to find out. There's some okay. interesting things that you're doing with treatment, and we're going to get into that later. But I want to start with something that you wrote on your blog, which is quite delightful, and I recommend all y'all's listening to, to go have a read. There's something you said. You said, for a long time, I've considered myself an outsider in my own field of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I'm curious to know more about that. I, I mean, I almost got into uh, Chinese medicine in, in an offhand way. I was out of college. I had uh, just come back from doing two consecutive three-month silent Zen meditation retreats, and I was just doing temp jobs, uh, living at uh, Cambridge Zen Center, Cambridge, Mass., trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I wanted to do something that would, you know, kind of tangibly help people, but wasn't really getting any luck in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do. Then I had some, there was someone at the Zen Center who was a uh, acupuncturist and part-time instructor at the New England School of Acupuncture. And I looked into it and I'd gotten acupuncture. I'd, you know, gotten some you know, I, I enjoyed it. I, I was kind of equivocal about how much it actually did for me, but Chinese herbal medicine actually had done a lot for me in terms of curing my chronic sinus infection. So, and I tried everything before then. And so I was kind of amazed uh, as a lot of us are when we start doing as patients doing Chinese medicine that uh, it actually works because like our patients that we see, so many come to us after nothing works. And then you try so many alternatives and they don't work. You know, I tried homeopathy. I tried uh, naturopathic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Tibetan medicine, but nothing really worked. So instead, I, I tried Chinese medicine and, and it was the first thing that got me off my antibiotics. And then I would just, you know, take a formula at the start of a sinus infection and it would go away. And, uh, and then the dietary ideas from Chinese medicine, I started to apply some of those, maybe cut down on the spicy food, <laughs> that sort of thing. I, I, you know, really was interested and believed in the Chinese herbal medicine. So I was like, okay, I looked at the requirements for going to school. I was like, um, I can actually do this. I don't have to do any prerequisites. I was a, you know, religious studies major in college, so I didn't have pre-med stuff. So anything that required prerequisites for two years, I was like, I just don't want to you know, spin my wheels for another couple of years. So. so it was easy to get in. Yeah. So, so, so I'm admitting that I got in Chinese medicine because of low bar for entry <laughs> at the time. It's gotten a lot tougher now, but you know, this was still, this was 98 when I got started. 98 is when they let me loose with a license. And they just come out with master's programs just a little bit prior to that. So, uh, so I got into there, but almost immediately, as soon as I started in there, I just felt like, is this real? I've been almost embarrassed by 
just like our outsider's place and the contempt that and either the contempt or ignorance that existed outside of the medicine for the medicine. And so I immediately hatched plans to after acupuncture school, go to medical school. And then I would be like, oh, best of both worlds. I would have the authority, right? I would have the authority and people would believe me. They wouldn't look at me funny. Authority of an MD. Exactly, right. And they wouldn't look at me funny, all this sort of stuff. So I looked at that seriously. But then one interesting thing that happened to me when I was in acupuncture school is I started studying with John Meyerson, Dr. John Meyerson, who uh, he taught the one three-hour course at NISA, the shamanic origins of Chinese medicine. I can't really remember that much about what he was saying in the course, but I had an amazing experience of, I guess, his person or his power uh, during the course. And so I came up and he didn't talk about that at all. He didn't talk about himself at all. This was all just about history. And so I went up to him and I was like, and I wrote about this in that article you wrote. And I was like, something weird is going on in this classroom. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, okay, well, here's my card. So then I started studying with him and that, um, that started pushing me in kind of a lateral direction, in a way pushing me towards continuing on with Chinese medicine, just Chinese medicine, but in a way that wasn't because I was really into the theory of Chinese medicine, or even that I even believed in acupuncture. I mean, I was ambivalent about acupuncture until I, till I had been practicing for a few years and started to see better results. I believe in Chinese herbal medicine, but the interesting thing was is that you're really interested in Chinese herbal medicine, then you get out of school, and my experience was most people just wanted acupuncture. So I had to get really good at acupuncture, and I had to start believing in it. But the shamanic stuff, I was also kind of I was, I, I was very reluctant to engage in it, but it was so phenomenologically interesting that I decided that I'm going to just see this through and see what happens here. And so that kind of got me started on some other paths. As my mind started kind of allowing itself to go in some other directions, I started doing some writing and then I had kids. And so then like after that happened, I was like, okay, medical school is not going to happen. <laughs> So I have to figure out where, what my role is and where I am within Chinese medicine. But I still never felt that comfortable. And I, I found all kinds of other things to do that I considered, okay, I'm going to become a writer now. And so I did that for a while. I actually wrote a novel and it was complicated reasons, but it almost got published. And then the agent that I had had a tragedy in his family, disappeared, and that kind of like went by the wayside. And so by that time I was making music and I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm not gonna pursue this. So I started making music and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this now. And I, you know, acupuncture is my day job. It's I'm helping people, but really this is the cool stuff because I just never felt cool as an acupuncturist. You know, it's not a cool thing. People look at you funny. It's a hard thing to explain to people. Everybody has the wrong idea about it. So I had all this kind of unresolved karma from when I was younger. I wanted to write, I wanted to make music, all this sort of stuff. And so it took me a while till I kind of exhausted all that karma until I really started to kind of come around back to... Chinese medicine and, and acupuncture as something that was actually really interesting to me. And it was really once I started to see this, um, what my contribution would be doing this like spinal palpation and acupuncture that I called acupuncture because uh, mainly because the URL was available. <laughs> I mean, you know, why not? I started doing that and seeing some really interesting things happen where I was able to start perceiving things in my patients in ways that I couldn't explain. 
and also seeing what I was doing might have even potential research implications in terms of using the spine as a proxy for what the distal points are doing. You might be able to measure what's happening in an objective way. So it started to become more interesting to me, and so I circled back around. So it's been like a long orbit from starting in Chinese medicine to coming back to it and feeling like I'm in it. I started um, assistant clinical supervisor at uh, CSTCM part-time. I've kind of been on hiatus while I started writing this book, but COVID kind of interrupted things there. But I also taught an NCCAOM course for one day. So I've gotten back in and more accepting my role as actually being within the medicine, but still what I do is a little bit different, a little bit outside, sometimes very outside. And so when you're already in an outsider profession and you're feeling outside from that, I mean, you're really on the where outside. are you? Yeah, exactly. You're, yeah, you're, you're out in the microwave background radiation. You're just, <laughs> you're, you're, you're out there. Yeah. You followed the circuitous path and you and I might be kindred spirits in that way. For me, whenever I've tried to follow the straight path, it, it always branches. The thing that's right in front of me that I think is the thing is never the thing. Yep. It comes in from the side. It's like a little glimmer. It's on the edge and it's like, huh, what's that? And you follow, follow, follow. And the next thing you know, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of coming into view. There's something here, but it's still not quite in your focus. It's just in your environment. At least that's been my experience. I followed acupuncture because I got curious about it. And, and I decided I wasn't going to do high tech anymore because I was looking at all the kids that were coming in that were like 12 years younger than me who had already forgotten more than I would ever learn. Young man's game. Unless I wanted to be in management, I didn't want to go to management. So I, I kind of circled around acupuncture too. I went to school similar to you in some ways. It's like, does this shit really work? I mean, okay, they wrote this down in a book, but anybody can write anything in a book. So how do you find the reality of it? And I, honestly, because I started out, I mean, 18 years old, I started uh, meditating on my own. And then I, you know, first was interested in Tibetan Buddhism and then uh, Zen Buddhism. And then I really followed it. Like I said, I did a three-month retreat in Korea and then a three-month retreat uh, in the U.S. I actually been rereading it recently, you know, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So this whole idea of always pressing reset, right? Always coming back to the beginning, always keeping the truth very lightly in your hands, you know? And so you have to have this absolute certainty and confidence in your, I would say, the phenomenological flow of your experience that comes from maximum attention, right? But also this complete detachment from the actual objects of thought that you have and allowing them to be very provisional, to not get too excited. I mean, writing, they say, kill your lovelies, right? You have to do that with your, you know, all your ideas, feelings, thoughts, perceptions. You know, it's like the, the heart sutras and meditation. It's like you're killing all your lovelies of all perceptions, thoughts, feelings, everything. You're just, uh, you know, you're, you see the Buddha in the road, you kill the Buddha. It's very, you know, it sounds very violent, but it's, it's this uh, blade of clarity, you know, that you are constantly cutting down these uh, reified objects that come from your thinking because of your attachment to them. And so I feel within Chinese medicine, uh, you know, the same way. And, and at the very beginning, too, I had some very good texts that were put in front of me at NISA that talked about 
the history of uh, Chinese medicine after um, the communist revolution and the way it was changed, you know, the purging of certain aspects. Also, that looking at Chinese medicine as also a cultural product, right? So there are certain cultural assumptions within Chinese medicine that come out of its traditional uh, practice within certain cultures that may not necessarily be essential to the practice of the medicine. We'll just say that. And it may not quite fit here, or even if it fits here. For example, in China, well, younger women these days, maybe so, but certainly middle-aged and older, when it's time for their period, they're not drinking icy cold drinks. I mean, they just don't do it. It's And it's partly because it's in the culture. Right, there's already an assumed knowledge. that It's assumed knowledge. And so in some ways, it's very easy to treat certain kind of menstrual disorders in Asia because you're sharing this common view. But you bring it here to America and suggest during your period, give up the ice cream. It has nowhere to land. Unless we start explaining Chinese medicine and give our patients kind of a Chinese medicine 101. But I don't think they're looking for that. They just want to feel better. So in some ways, the challenge is how do we take and explain through the models and metaphors and the languaging of Western physiological function, how this stuff works? And it's, it's a bit of a challenge, but it can also be kind of fun. Take some creativity, I've discovered. Yeah, I mean, the problem of uh, importing Chinese medicine, I think, is twofold. Uh, the one is what we just discussed, which is how much of the practice of Chinese medicine is culturally bound coming from Asia. And then also how much is culturally indecipherable in our reception of it, right? And so the way that language determines how you think to a great extent, right? And so if you're in a language that has ideograms where different concepts are grouped together and have a, a certain richness or, or depth in the words, because these ideograms have a history, they, they have resonances within them, and you compare that to a language that is completely atomic, like a, an alphabet, right? Where um, each letter has really no significance. It has no, and then you put letters together, they relate to the letters themselves, but there is no picture there. There's no history there within that is visible within a, a written word, right? You can already see that the ways that you would think in, in Chinese medicine, Asian medicine would be more analogical and more of a gestalt, to use an overused word, holistic. So there's a holism to a concept where you take the whole concept as a piece, which then you can expand and and and, and unfold, but it has a certain power of having this cohesive structure within it, as opposed to something that is completely reduced and atomized, which, you know, which is Western medicine, right? You, you move everything down to its smallest part. And then you, it's like you're dissecting everything. And then you reassemble this Frankenstein out of this dissected pieces. And yeah, maybe that Frankenstein can move around, but the, the, the sum of the parts does not equal a whole living thing. And there's lots of holes. It's more of a Swiss cheese. Um, there's, lots of, there's lots of pieces missing. 
and also the variables. There's a, you can't solve an equation once you get up to a certain amount of variables. There's just not enough computing power in the world to, to do so. And so in Western medicine, you have this thing like, okay, here's 15 different drugs we're giving this person. How do those things interact? No one could ever tell you. There's no computer that could compute that for you, right? There's just too many variables to solve that equation. Whereas in Chinese medicine, you have this this whole gestalt that you can use as an analytical tool um, that includes all these different things, all these different parts that connect with each other. And you, you can use that as a way to analyze that gives you a different kind of power uh, than the reductive model, which also gives you a lot of power. There's a, there's, there's a power to, you know, kind of sharpening things down to this knife-like blade, right? This like this atomic structure, but they're not the same. And so how do you get past that how do you make a, a bridge between those two things? That's going to vary so much because people are going to have different facilities. You know, if you, for example, if you, if you are um, very culturally familiar with China, would you speak Chinese? Uh, you could have a, a, a much more sophisticated understanding of the meanings of certain texts, for example, in their history and, and concepts and their richness. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily make you less blind to say certain cultural assumptions right? Not necessarily. And we're working within our culture. There was something you mentioned a few minutes ago about the Zen practice and about beginner's mind and this place of, of holding our concepts lightly. Of course, we have lots of concepts in Chinese medicine. In fact, it's our concepts that help us to come up with a diagnosis and a good diagnosis will guide our treatment and we're more likely to be helpful to our patients. And so concepts and the ability to work mental models, all very necessary, all very important. And at the same time, not get trapped inside the model, even as we're using the model. You have to think of even our diagnoses, right? And this was one of the reasons I was always uncomfortable in acupuncture school was because from the very beginning, I read some texts just emphasizing how much these are essentially poetical analogies, right? These, these diagnostic categories we have, um, liver cheese stagnation, you know, phlegm harassing the heart, right? It's like all this stuff. But we tend to reify it um, you, when you hear an acupuncturist speaking and talking about these things as if they are unconstructed, absolute real things there in the world. So holding them lightly means you understand that it's, it's an image that points to something, right? That it's an idea but like any idea, it has to it has to find its way to the actual thing. Even within Chinese medicine, you know, if you look at the contradictions between five phases and then yin yang theory, uh, they don't mesh completely. But you use one sometimes, you use the other sometimes. So just like we have quantum physics and relativistic physics, right? You use one at one scale, you use another at another scale. We don't know how they fit together. You know, these are all best working approximations that work within certain terrains or uh, within certain uh, value parameters very well. But there are many cases where you get outside those those bounds and it might not cohere anymore. And the, the theory doesn't necessarily cover what you're seeing anymore. And so there's always this question, okay, am I just not good enough at this? Or am I not seeing the whole picture? How do I more clearly see it? Right, especially as a student, you're like, is this is is this me or is this the theory? Is this 
a, a place where Chinese medicine doesn't work or am I just not good enough yet, right? And when 20 years will I see, oh yes, actually this is what this text means and, and I can analyze this and I am able to see this and, and everything actually is exactly as the textbook says. So, I mean, I'm 20 years on and I, I still haven't solved that. And, and so I found my, my own way to try to find something within Chinese medicine that I could really believe in and start from there and kind of build from there. And for me, that was palpation. And um, that was finding correlations between needling and uh, immediate changes I could feel in structure. Because, you know, where structure, at least it's like a bone is either here or it's, or it's here, right? And, and, and that seems to be the clearest for me, almost binary determination of whether something actually happened as opposed to pulse, right? Which is infinitely Infinitely subjective. Yeah, exactly. Infinitely subjective. I mean, I've, I've studied three, at least four different pulse systems, right? Because I was trying to find my home within it. And it turns out the one I'm most comfortable with is Japanese because it's also very binary. It's like, which is the weakest, which is the strongest? There you go. <laughs> you know, and you base your root treatment on that. It's like pulse for dummies. Um, because everything else is like, I would overthink it. I would overthink it. Am I projecting onto this? Am I, am I, imposing something on this in my, you know, and, 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 and I could never answer that question. And I could kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to tell myself this and seems like this is, you know, what's happening, but I was never really sure. Japanese have abdominal palpation where they, what's soft, what's firm, what's cold, what's hot. Um, even that was too much. How do I know if it's cold or hot? Unless it's really, really cold or really, really hot. But if you're talking about these subtle things, Am I just imposing that? Am I just, am I just, the teacher says, oh, feel this, this is cold. I feel this, it's cold. Is, is it because the teacher just told me it was? I don't, I don't know. So, so I had to start, I had to start with like the atom, like talking about going back to the atomic structure. I had to start with the most reductive atom of belief in Chinese medicine, which was, okay, I can feel the spine moving when I do certain things. Before it was out of alignment, now it's in alignment. And I did this with a distal point. So I'm like, okay, well, that that's something, right? That That actually is, you know, that's acupuncture working the way acupuncture is supposed to be working. It's just by a different met metric than other people are, are measuring, probably because I'm, I was so incompetent at pulse and I had such trouble, you know, believing everything I read that I had to create more work for myself to do something else to actually be able to feel good coming to work every day that I wasn't wasting people's money and deluding myself. Yeah, that piece about deluding ourselves, I think, is something a lot of us struggle with, especially in the first few years, especially when results may not be so great. We're doing our work. We're doing it the best we can. The books say it should be like this, but I'm looking at what's happening in clinic. Book is not matching clinic, right? Clinic is not matching theory. My reality is far from theory. That'll leave you in kind of a no man's land. I've seen other people make this stuff work. I've had it work on myself. I've had these brief, at times, glimpses of how powerful the medicine can be, and especially acupuncture, how powerful it can be. But to get it to reliably function well, that's another story. And again, you talk about pulses, I... I'm a little bit of dead wood when it comes to pulses. I mean, there's certain pulses I can feel, and there's actually certain pulses that will sort of speak to me. I can feel them quite easily. Uh, sometimes I've discovered pulses that were not in any of the books. I've given them my own name. I just kind of recognize, oh, there's that ringing pulse. Okay, all right. You know, 
What does that ringing pulse mean? Oh, that's up to me to figure out now. I can feel it. I may not know what it means, but I can feel it. Well, from the very beginning, I was, I was trying to think of, okay, what is really happening when people are feeling pulses, right? You know, going back to the uh, shamanic and oracular beginnings of Chinese medicine, you'd, you'd have these scapular, uh, scapulomancy. 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 So uh, taking an ox scapula, throwing it in the fire, and then the cracks in the ox scapula would, uh, would, would give you a diagnosis of uh, the spirit that was uh, disturbing somebody or cracks in a tortoise shell. Pulse is like that, right? Because it is a form of divination. And if we understand that, then we can understand the way that so many different pulse styles seem to give people information. Because you hear about these Chinese medicine doctors who can feel pulse and tell you, oh, you broke your thumb when you were two years old. That's not a pulse shape that we learn. And so, um, where do you get that? Is and that's and and why would you know three inches of radial pulse be giving you information about twelve meridians, twelve organ systems, qualities, all this sort of stuff? I mean, you can start to think about okay, the you know acupuncture channels have a fractal structure, which I think is actually true when you start looking at distal points, um, especially like the tong, tong system or uh, Richard Tan's balance method. It's like you can always shrink things and work from a smaller section and that will become a synecdoche of, of the whole thing that will become a microsystem for the whole thing. And then you can shave that and use a smaller microsystem. So, you know, it's possible that it's that, but I also think that the pulse becomes a focus of attention. And anytime you have a focus of attention where you are really tuning in what's going on, the mind calms, the senses heighten, and then you can see things that you couldn't see before with, with a clarity that you can believe. And I think the pulse is a way of focusing the mind. You know, you dive deeper and deeper into it, your, your mind creates these images and then is doing a lot of work for you underneath the hood connecting the history or connecting what you're seeing with the person, connecting the vibe even. And then you come up with these diagnoses and the sort of provisional shapes that you're given, the provisional uh, pulse system that you're given gives you, it's like you're like this climbing gym where you're given handholds to, to go onto. And then you go, it's like, but really, of course, you know, you're, you're on this face that has many different ways you could go many things that may seem like a place to put your hand and then you, you could slip but it's not it's not built for you you're using it but it's not built for you if someone comes to you their system is not built for you to understand it but if you have these hermeneutics for understanding things you can you can use that as a way to focus so that you can actually see the stuff that is sort of in between those things and make sense of it. But I also think too, if you don't hold it too lightly, if you're really orthodox about it, you have this power because, you know, we talked about analytical power before. There's a power to being a, a, a true believer, to being truly orthodox, to being like, I am a classical this, I do this, this is like what I do, your whole hog, you believe in it completely. It allows you to go forward and go through the ambiguity and go through your doubt, right? And you, you can maybe go with things or push further than you might if you're holding back or hesitant. But on the other hand, you risk imposing a shape onto something that 
doesn't fit it. You're just, you're drawing legs on the snake, as they say in Zen. You're, you're, there's the thing and you're, you, you have to do something to make it work in your mind. And then that's what you, you prescribe for the patients based, based on that. And so I, there's, there's room for practitioners who are coming things more elliptically, uh, obliquely, and incorporating other things. You just have to understand that there's you know, there's pros and cons, right, to to both approaches, to both stances. And you don't really even have a choice. You know, if you're the type of person who, who who's full of doubt, that's just who you are. If you're the type of person who finds something and you believe in it completely and you just, you know, barrel forward and break through walls, you know, like this juggernaut that just, you just keep on going through the theory, you're, you're great with it, it's powering you, uh, that's who you are. You don't have any choice. You can't choose to be one or the other. You can understand that there are people in there kind of like have their their other way of being wonderful in the world. Uh, but that's not you. And so you have to find your own way of making things work and helping people. And you bring in other things that might not be in your textbooks or might not be within Chinese medicine. Or in my case, I actually feel like are actually fundamental to Chinese medicine. They just come from before Chinese medicine was Chinese medicine, right? The shamanic origins of Chinese medicine. It's like the the one before it becomes the two in Taoism. It's like, so before it splits up and becomes the Yellow Emperor's classic, before it becomes all these theories, before before it multiplies into words and thoughts, there is this prehistorical healing that goes on and perception that goes on. And so... I feel like I've had to rewind all the way back to that to find find another exit point for myself to come out that was maybe parallel to the Chinese medicine that was written down, which of course we don't know of complete Chinese medicine. So much was secret, so much maybe may have been lost. There could have been thousands of practitioners who do what I do. They just didn't talk about it because if you talked about it, then someone else would do it and maybe you'd lose all your patience to them. So who knows what actually happened in history. But I felt like I had to I had to go with something that brought me to a place uh, regardless of what was written down because we know that that's all, all histories are partial and all thinking has holes in it. All paradigms are incomplete, and you don't know that until you, you know, get to some other paradigm that enfolds this other one where you can see it's. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. And it's often like these interlocking Russian dolls, 
you have something, it may be complete within itself, but it's not complete within the universe or something else that it's within. All these embedded wheels. Right. So talking about like terrains or, or sets of values or parameters within which this works really well. So I want to come back to terrains. And I want to come back to ambiguity and doubt. And I want to hear more about the shamanistic aspect because I've got, I've got a horse in the race, so to speak, because I remember as a kid in high school, I loved that Carlos Castaneda story. Those were fantastic. And, and then I remember reading something about like Russian shamans and things. And I, and I thought, you know what? I hope I never have to have that as a job. On one hand, I remember having this very sort of glorified image of, you know, like a, a, a true medicine person. And then I got this glimpse that, oh my gosh, the work that you got to do, the shadow that you've got to learn to eat, the way that you've woven your world together to be able to unravel it enough to let this other stuff in, that does not sound like an easy path to follow. That's just my perspective fears i'm not quite sure how to how to describe it but it's one of the things that's always kept me away from wanting to get too close to that stuff because that looked like a not easy road to hoe well you know the funny thing is about it is you're never close to it until you find yourself inside it so when you start to get into this weirder stuff this more inexplicable stuff for me i was extremely skeptical because i was for reasons having to do with my own childhood. My own mother was a uh, tarot card reader, right? And so, you know, growing up, like, I was like, okay, you know, she always had trouble being in the world. Like, she was, like, the plane that she was wor working on didn't mesh well with paying bills and that sort of thing. So I, I was very determined to be rooted in the world, be rooted in experience, be uh, very honest about what I could perceive or not perceive and understand my own process. And so that, I think that's what led me to, to, to Zen was like, how does the mind work? How does perception work? How, how do the senses turn into perceptions of real things? And how do we know that they're real? And, and of course, I, I was also very much interested in neurology. I was interested in science. I was interested in philosophy, really understanding how all this worked and being very skeptical of anything that was new age or anything um, where people started talking about chakras, they started talking about astral traveling, astral planes, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? And the bullshit meter goes off the charts, and I think it should. Your first duty is to doubt completely. Don't stop, really, until there is something there that you find it very hard to deny. And then your next duty is to to not kind of put the doubt down, but to hold it next to this thing that you're experiencing and try to have both simultaneously. And that is the difficult thing. It's similar in meditation practice, if anyone's ever done any meditation practice, where you are observing your thoughts but not engaging with them and somehow um, thinking while not thinking, Right. And so uh, if you've ever, you know, been deep in meditation where you realize you're understanding things, but you even realize that realization of understanding things is not in words. And as soon as that happens, you realize, oh, those were the words. And then you let those go, and then you still understand everything. And it's just these different frames that go by each other, and almost like uh, frames of a uh, movie where you can see the individual frames and they start moving fast enough. Um, it forms this whole picture. 
that is beyond these divided little cells of, of thinking and stuff. And so you get this hum, you get this hum of perception that seems to encompass all these things without breaking them up or uh, assuming anything about them. As Master Dogen said, uh, the bird outside my window is not a bird, therefore it is a bird. And what that means is that as soon as you name something, you deny its specificity in this moment in time in all its qualities, right? You've imposed something generic upon it that makes you see it less. And it's the same idea as beginner's mind, really, right? When you have some kind of experience, and, and you know, some people will have some kinds of experiences and some people won't. And if you haven't, then absolutely 100% doubt that they've ever happened, right? You just, you just have to, because otherwise you enter the world of charlatans, because there are plenty of narcissists and other assorted personality disordered folks who will take advantage of people who might have some little corner on wisdom, but then blow it up to become this monstrous thing that is the opposite of wisdom, right? But might have some kind of charismatic power. Or people take one thing and they're like, oh, wow, the world as I knew it uh, was not complete. There's things that happen that can't be explained and that maybe science is wrong about, you know, this and these things can happen. And then they generalize it to believe that everything is real, right? That every fringe thing is real, that every alternative medicine thing is real, that everything you see on the internet that's being sold to you, every device or every... So it's like, if, if one thing they told me was wrong is real, maybe everything is real. And that's also not real, right? That also does not follow. You cannot generalize there. There might be a few things that science has missed so far, right? But it doesn't mean that if you, if you imagine it, it's real. But sometimes if you imagine something, it is real. <laughs> How do you know? Well, I, I think I see this in clinic all the time with my patients, that I will come up with an idea of what's going on for them. It seems like a good idea. I do a treatment. They get worse. What does that mean? I was wrong about that. Now I have more information. I, in fact, if I've done a very targeted treatment, now I've got good information because we've gone in a direction that was not helpful. How do I know that's real? Because their back pain is worse and they are now nauseous or something like that. So that's more information. It's new data points, a chance to look at my own perception, my own mental models and go, if these things are also true, what else is going on here? Mm -hmm. And of course, there are those interesting cases where, and I see them almost exclusively with either workers' comp or with spouses who have brought in, especially male spouses who've been brought in, where as soon as they get better, they get worse. And then they don't come back. As soon as they get better, they get worse. Yeah. It's, it's like there's almost this panic of improvement. And especially in the workers' comp cases, the healing is not, you know, we can't, you can't abstract the body and the mind from the entire life and situation. So if someone is depending on feeling bad for their livelihood or their sense of self for certain benefits, if you make them too good, they lose all that, right? So they're not getting better is the reason they're coming. They need to confirm that one more thing is also not helping them. And therefore, they are stuck. They are in the situation. They are hopeless, which in that situation is actually 
the best possible possibility in, in terms of their perception, right? And that may be real in that moment or not. That can happen too. So sometimes people get bad and you're scratching your head and you don't understand why. But, you know, or you don't know, say a spouse comes in, right? You treat the wife, the, she drags in the husband. The husband looks at you like sideways, right? The next time you see him, he has this satisfied gleam in his eye. It's like, nope, don't feel any better. Treat him a couple more times. You know, you can almost see this, like, this smirk, this, like, this psychic smirk. Like, nope, don't feel, don't feel better. And so this is, like, one more thing he can say, I told you so, right? So that's, like, a, a, a situation in which the wrong outcome that you're intending, they're not getting better, is the best outcome for them. This is really interesting, and I hadn't thought about this until you just bring it up, especially if someone's on workman's comp, and maybe they're getting some good money on workman's and comp. And of course, this, I don't mean to say blanket. You know, I've had, I've had cases get better, but by far that population is the one where the, I have the lowest success rate. Unless they were prior patients who came to me who then had an accident, then they're in workers' comp, and then they come to me, and then they're just, it's just like any other injury. But typically, you get someone, they've been through the mill, they year year or two on from their injury, and they're enmeshed in the system, and they're referred to you. And so there's an entire history that you are peripheral to, and you're just one more piece. You're not the thing that's going to help them. You're just one more piece of this complicated tapestry that they are moving through, you know? How do you work with those folks? Mm. Good question. <laughs> I haven't solved it. Sometimes you can ask the question, right? What would you do if all your pain went away? How would your life change? That may or may not open a door. If, if, it's, self, if it's subconscious, right? If it's just a self subconscious block, that might. If they're consciously doing this, right? If they're consciously gaming the system, for instance, and trying to keep their benefits or their medication. They're trying to keep their Vicodin prescription, or they are traumatized by their job. They don't want to go back to a job that injured them where they're going to be working themselves to death and end up on disability anyway in their 50s or 60s because, you know, their job is incredibly hard and physically brutal. You get somebody who gets injured, they have uh, trauma, they don't want to go back to their job. And maybe there's no other job they can do. We think, oh, you can find another job. Below a certain uh, income or training level, your options are few and slim. Like that job that hurt you might be your best option. But if that's your best option, the next best option might not be working at all. And so I would have to usher in a fully automated luxury communism in order to really heal you <laughs> because your situation is enmeshed in uh, socioeconomic structures that make your a certain kind of suffering preferable to the other kinds of suffering you could have. And so I am just part of this bureaucracy for you. But I'm, I'm sure there are people who have a subconscious, they actually do want to go back, they want to get through this, they, they, and you could probably help them. It's just, I don't want to impose that on people. I always come to them like, you are coming in because you want to be helped, and I'm going to help you. I'm the thing that you tell me you want to be helped, right? And I don't tend to pry. I tend to come at things very, fairly gingerly. I don't try to take control of people's health. I really try to meet them wherever they are. And a lot of that's too. Like I, I, you know, prior to being in Denver, now I was in Southwest Colorado in a really remote rural area in the Four Corners in Montezuma County. And 
you know, it's a lower level of education, a lower income level. Vast majority of my patients work with their bodies and hands. And so it's a different situation down there. People aren't traditionally have not been as gung-ho about changing their lifestyle. You know, it's like, I'm not going to get most of these people to do Qigong and eat bitter melon, right? <laughs> I mean, do any of us really want to change our lifestyle? I mean, when you come right down to it. People often, uh, Chinese medicine people who are, you know, into doing doing all the, from perspective of people outside of it, very extreme stuff and weird fringe stuff to keep ourselves healthy. And we seem really neurotic. My wife thinks I'm a complete hypochondriac. Maybe I am. But also it's because I'm always like, okay, what's, what's the Chinese medicine theory about what's going on right now? Let me try this, right? So we're always experimenting on ourselves and we're always hyper vigilant and, and aware of the smallest, minutest details of our health. To most people, that seems like a pain in the ass. To most people, it's like, you know, you just want to you drive your car. You don't want to be tinkering with it constantly. But there are people who love tinkering with cars. So we have a particular f obsession with bodies that a lot of people don't have. But I mean, I think even in, in places where cultural cohesion, you're living in a city and like most people you see are strangers. You live in a town of 12,000. You've seen everybody's face after a while, right? You not you might not know them, but you've seen them. And so cultural cohesion is, uh, you know, comes from the foods you eat and the, the things you do. And, and if you start to get weird, people are really going to notice it. So there, you can't, there's no place to hide, right? So uh, I think, you know, places like that, changing lifestyle is, is harder. So then I guess my point is that I, I came to meet people where they were and someone just wanted their elbow fixed, I would just fix their elbow. I'd see all the other stuff in them. I might mention a couple things, but really it was it was fairly hands-off unless someone started to say, oh, can you help this? Oh, can you help this? And I was like, sure. You might have to quit smoking though. <laughs> you might have to eat vegetables. You might have to do more exercise than simply house cleaning, which is great. You know, chores are great, but you're going to have to do something besides just your work. What do you do for exercise? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I feed cows. It's like, okay, yeah. And I mean, it's exhausting, right? It definitely feels like exercise <laughs> to like work on a farm or a ranch. And I explain, well, if you're doing it for your own survival, that's going to do different things in your mind and body than if you're doing it just for its own sake. Really interesting study that I heard about where they took maids in a hotel and they gave them they split them into two groups. One group was given instructions on like how to lift in certain ways to protect their back or whatever. And the other group was given this suggestion and this idea about how their work was exercise. And because they were walking this many miles a day and because they were squatting this much and because they were using their body in a particular way, they were actually doing good things for their body. They were of a workout and then they came and checked their weight and blood chemistry and all that kind of stuff a few months later and the ones who had in their mind that this is beneficial for my health the work i do is beneficial for my health showed right, right. so same thing different idea the idea changes your posture changes what's happening in your mind which of course changes what's happening in your body and which then starts to change everything in a very linked, holistic way. And um, so I guess for me, I had to really work with people where 
whatever they were and try to tread carefully culturally um, with things. And But also, in, in a way, for me, it was nice for a while because it's like it was very uncomplicated. I didn't have to get into to stuff with people. It's like, oh, fix my elbow. I can fix your elbow. But then, of course, there are those cases where you're doing the simple thing that usually works and it doesn't work and you're really scratching your head and then you're looking, oh, they're depressed. Oh, they have really you know, high inflammation. They have, they have diabetes. They have all these other things. And it's like, okay, actually, we do have to go into these deeper stuff. Oh, actually, Chinese medicine theory. I really actually have to do some internal medicine stuff here. But it's nice when you don't have to. When I was in the eighth grade, I had a shop class which I loved because we made stuff with our hands. We got to play with fire and saws and nails and all that good stuff. And the teacher would always tell us, it was like a mantra. We hear it every day, right tool for the right job, boys. And I suspect it's the case with our clinics as well. Sometimes it's just an elbow issue. Maybe that elbow issue is actually attached to the rest of their particular universe in in a very profound way, but maybe it's not. And if it's not, perhaps a bit of acupuncture will help. But if it's actually really attached to the rest of the universe in a pivotal way, okay, now that's a different terrain that we have to work on. Yeah, and you know, I mean, to kind of paraphrase Freud, sometimes an elbow is just an elbow, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I just want to want to bracket one thing because just talking about in terms of meeting people where they are and treating the part rather than the whole and and tools this sort of thing, um, really getting into the shamanic stuff and kind of working internally with people, working with more psychoemotional, spiritual, or karmic stuff. That's been happening more since COVID, and so I, I, I'm I'm even now like after a long time, after twenty years. Um, starting to get different interests and perspectives here. And I used to be just really content with just, hey, I can work all day. I can treat 40 people a week doing elbows, make a good living and do it in three days in my free time. I can like make music or write books or whatever. And now actually my work itself and my interests have gotten closer and closer and closer to the point where like my meditation practice, um, my medicine practice, all of it is feeding back into itself and in, in a holistic way. So that's kind of changed. So in terms of connecting different parts, like my elbow is now connected to the rest of my body much more than it was before in my practice. Um, so I don't know if that is going to impact what you wanted to ask me about, but that's I wanted to have that thought before we moved on. Great. And, and thank you for the reminder that, well, our medicine is deeply integrative between heaven, earth, and person, and uh, between our internal environment and our external environment, our relationships. I mean, yes, at one level, we can just look at elbows. At the same time, we know that elbows are also connected to the rest of the body, and the rest of that body is connected to a family and a social system and an economic system. Thunderstorms and tornadoes and ocean tides and everything else. So there's that. And and we can get into that at another time. I think that would be a a juicy conversation. What I would like to know a bit more about from your perspective is this idea of intention. So this is something, and I hear this a lot in our profession about, well, you know, the most important thing in a treatment is your intention. And I often feel like an idiot because 
sometimes I don't know the difference between intention and wishful thinking or intention and hoping or intention and, well, I've got an agenda because I want to feel good about who I am and the work that I do. So it seems whenever I hear that word intention, all of a sudden I feel like the gravity has gotten a little bit less. It's like I'm walking on thin, slippery black ice. Right. And my hand always goes to, goes to my pocket to make sure my wallet's still there if I, you know, see someone talking about it online. There's a lot of links to that in this, you know, greater new age kind of prosperity gospel. If you think it, it becomes real universe we have going on in the wellness community, right? And new age spirituality, all that stuff. And um, not that it's completely wrong. There's something to it. But it's if the intention comes out of ego, then it is just another construction. It's just another want. And it is, um, you can be so focused on it, right? So let's deflect from intention to attention. Um, because I feel like intention without attention is, it's an inert thing. It's a tool that can be used for anything and is not necessarily good because plenty of intentions can be followed and they don't lead to good places in the end for people because um, there's so much attachment to that intention that it's used as a, a sword or battering ram to break through everything or everyone that would get in its way. Can you give so, me an example of that? Your intention is to become the greatest Chinese medicine practitioner ever, right? What that becomes is a guru kind of complex where you start to convince people that they need to spend more and more. Um, you increase your prices a lot. You create dependencies in people. Um, you are taking control of their lives and you find new ways to monetize and to increase your margins so that you become more and more well-known or more and more, more wealthy, right? And have a bigger and bigger clinic and have more clinics. And the number of clinics and number of patients becomes uh, the signifier of how good a provider you are. And so that would be a situation where the um, intention is so latched to this unexamined ego, right? This unexamined self that it becomes this mech robot that it's living within, this exoskeleton that just starts barreling through life and, and, and can become very destructive. And you often see with that kind of trajectory that there becomes some kind of scandal. There's a money scandal. There's a sex or harassment scandal. There's something that happens that some Achilles heel that just the self wants the burden of being free of itself. The self wants the burden of being free of itself. Yeah. Um, you know, so the self, I think even in people who are really attached to their selves, they will create their own destruction at some point to solve that attachment, to uh, learn humility especially if if they're in a in a field that does emphasize attention and requires humility and so you know so intention without attention so i really want to kind of circle back to the more metaphysically right and and metaphysically i mean actually more practically now how does this unfold in our work with our patients right and so so this idea of holding it lightly side tangent here's a koan for you um can a robot practice acupuncture that's a modern koan. Right. 
So, you know, because is this just a mechanical insertion of a needle to a certain depth in the right place for the right condition that could be al- algorithmically uh, decided by signs and symptoms? Or is that all an excuse for us to pour on the juice of our attention, right? And uh, connect with that person and vibrate from one nervous system to the other, one, uh, you know, our vagus nerves, the third higher primate branch of the nervous system nobody else has that is completely social and that determines this health of our immune system based on social cues and, and group dynamics, right? How much of what's happening in our medicine is, is that? And everything else is an excuse to order it and believe in it and interact with more of the kind of matter, more of the meat and potatoes, meat, the, the meat and bones. But this spirit that animates it is always trying to find a way in to, to, to work. And so that's all of our medicine is a way of just ordering this energy, ordering this chi through these patterns of medicine, patterns of body, patterns of flesh. And a robot can't do that. But maybe it could do something right? And so maybe sticking a needle mechanically in certain places could conceivably do something. And that, of course, confuses things, right? Um, You could imagine that that could be true. And so how much is, you know, intention doing here? Um, How much is just the technique itself and knowledge and just, it's an open question. So that's where attention comes from. That's where like being aware of everything that's happening when it's happening as much as you can really comes in so you can explore this question because i think it's a great question what does intention do if you've solved that if you have an answer to that question then you've killed it you really have because that is actually what is intention is actually a practice that um, is the intention itself it's the practice itself and the questioning of the practice is the practice uh, because it keeps it alive so could you say that intention is the practice of attention? Intention is in dialectical synthesis with attention, right? So you have an intention, you pay attention, then you understand if your intention was the correct intention or not, and where it was coming from. And then it might need to be altered to some new intention that is also provisional. You know, it's like this asymptote that we're always approaching. It's, it's sharpening this blade, Right and getting getting more and more refined, and it goes back and forth. It has to always go back and forth. It has to always be reflected upon. And there are different ways of doing that. It's like whether it's meditation or qigong or, or, or scholarship even, you know? It's like in Tibetan Buddhism, they have the people, the Dzogchen people who are almost like, you know, Zen, where it's very like direct perception. And they have the Galugpa people who are scholars and they become enlightened by just, you know, mostly by studying, by, 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 by kind of getting into this, the depths of this study so intensely that it breaks through their minds and they have this enlightenment. So different minds can have access to this dialectic different ways, you know? Um, I think for some people who have very busy minds, simpler stuff is is better. So that's kind of why I ended up in Zen, because it's you and a floor. And so you have this stark, impenetrable wall of this is all there is. And then somehow you, by starting there, it opens the entire universe in some really interesting and painful way. <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, um, but I think because I started there, when this idea of 
compassion, helping all beings, it's always a question of, okay, what's the wisdom part? How do I do that? Uh, and, and I don't necessarily think that there's any one way. And so I'm always, you know, I'm always open to finding, uh, new pathways that I think might be helpful. And then also questioning whether they are really helpful. That's kind of my practice. And yeah, these days it's leading me in some really interesting ways, like doing distance work with people. And that's very free form. You know, I don't have any guidelines when I'm working on people. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I'd love to hear some about the distance healing, the distance that you're doing. I know when COVID first came along, I was doing some herbal consultations online and I was seeing some of my patients partly because they just wanted someone to talk to. I remember doing some things like some acupressure with them and it was incredibly unsatisfactory for everybody involved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of telling them, okay, press here and they would press on themselves. Right. Yeah, that, that just didn't do anything. Right. People except make them wish that they could come in for acupuncture. Right. So I'd love to hear something about the distance work that you're doing. Sure, sure. It's kind of like acupuncture. I was on this uh, balance beam that was like three feet off the floor. And you can, you're trying to stay on this thing, you know, pay attention so that you can figure out what's going on with your patients and you treat them. But you feel like you're, you're not that far off. You're, you're up in this world of chi. But, you know, you can still see the ground. It's right here. And I've given that up when you're doing distance work. It's like I'm on the tightrope. It's like it's I'm I'm way up there. There's there's no net and it's very freeform. And so I didn't advertise myself. It's like, oh, I'm I'm going to start doing shamanic healing energy medicine with you. I just told my patients, hey, I, I can I can work with pain uh, and, and some some issues during this COVID, you know, lockdown. Uh, so everybody can try, have a free session just try it out and if, if it's for you then we can we can you know keep on trying and i had a few patients take me up on it and then um they actually preferred it uh but and i had a couple who tried it and and, and liked it but still wanted me to work on them but and then i started to get other people who were referred and now i have a bunch of people that's kind of people who are referring each other so a growing number of people who are completely outside my regular 
patients who I'm doing this basically we're acupuncturists. So it, this is not acupuncture. So it's, it's coaching, which is like, you know, what you can do when, um, you don't want to go on your, your acupuncture license and, 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 and get in trouble because you're not, you know, you can't, this is not intended to cure any disease, right? You know, I'm just, uh, I'm giving you coaching. I'm telling you what to do. What phenomenologically is happening is I'm sitting there and I am, I might be explaining what I'm doing, but mostly I'm, and this is something that happened when I started working on people's spines where at one point I noticed that I would know where their spine was going to be pointing, you know, where the misalignments were before I put my hand on them. I knew what I was going to find. I was, and I didn't even know that that's what was happening. It's just one of those things where like, I was just kept on being not surprised. And I was like, okay, well, okay, let's be a little bit more, you know, programmatic about this. Let's, let's be more scientific about this. How, how far away can I know what's going to be happening? And then I would, and then I started like writing down, okay, someone comes in, and I write down, okay, what's going on with their spine? And then I palpate and be like, oh, wow, okay. And then I di- started doing it over the phone. <laughs> and they would come in and, and, I would, and I would check what was going on and uh, verify that that's what was going on. I was, the first one, I was like, okay, there's, there's some cue I'm seeing. There's some electromagnetic thing my body's picking up on. But over the phone, I mean, like... Okay, quantum entanglement. What's what is going on here from a rational perspective that this can happen? And so, but it kept on happening. And I was like, okay, I have to honor the phenomenology of this, even though I'm as skeptical of this as as, as I can be. But I'm just going to play with it. It, 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 it turned into a, a game. It's just you know, this is fun. Let's let's pre- let's pretend this is really happening. And then one day I was walking in the neighborhood with, with my wife and she was complaining about neck pain. I've worked on her a million times and I was like, okay, I can see, okay, C7's going to the left, C1's going to the right. And I was like, uh, hold on one second. And then I imagined pressing points on her kidney channel that I would normally use in clinic to correct those. And I was like, move your head around. She's like, oh yeah, it doesn't hurt. And so, and then I went and I palpated and it was straight and I was like, okay, and then, you know, I did this with a few friends, you know, I try, and then, then with my patients, I would, I would basically start treating them before I put the needles in, not telling them that I was doing it. I was just like, okay, I start to treat, I'd palpate. I would sit there for a second, in my mind, start doing the acupuncture needles on their body and then see what would happen. And the actual, talking about intention, the actual doing the treatment in my mind, feeling the pressure on there, basically modeling it as if I were feeling pressure, like doing acupressure on them or something, or feeling like the sensation you get of chi in the needle, um, that you can feel through the needle, feeling that in my mind and in in my, basically my projection of my body in my mind, this sort of somatic muscle memory, like feeling that what it felt like pressing those points, feeling when they would change. And then I would verify. And so then, you know, during COVID, I just decided, you know, let, let me, let me just try this with people. And so I'd have people who had never seen me before who would get referred by other people and they would, you know, tell me, oh, I've got some neck pain, some back pain. I would see what was going on with their spine. I would do an acupuncture treatment, including the Japanese root say, okay, we're dealing with a kidney pattern. Okay. We've got a spleen pattern here. Um, uh, tell me about your digestion. And then I, I would see different things here and, and work on it, basically doing this virtual acupuncture treatment. And I, you know, I also have some training in craniosacral therapy, which was kind of one gateway and sort of how I was able to feel points. And so I, I would do that with people. And then all kinds of really interesting stuff would come up with childhood stuff with like, I would get images of things that happened and, you know, 
And then I started to see, like, I was like, okay, well, we're going to pretend right now that I'm seeing a past life. Because this is, I'm seeing this person and this is what's going on. And then uh, they're dying in this particularly terrible way or they're struggling with this or they're, they're, they're an alcoholic or you know, something like that. And I would just say, okay, do, what this, do with this what you will. Um, I, this is what I'm seeing right now. And um, basically presenting it as I don't really know what this is. I'm just seeing this. If this is meaningful to you, that's great. If it's nonsense, might be total nonsense. And so just allowing it to be where go wherever it goes. And so of course I talk about this and I'm like, I have no way to justify this, but it's enough that people keep on calling me back and tell other people to call me. And so we do it. It's some kind of exploration that people are doing with me that I'm learning a lot from and that I feel honored to do with people um, because we're doing something that's very strange. It requires a lot of trust and is also um, completely, uh, speculative off the deep end, but they seem to feel something is prof profound happening because they can't explain it either. And it feels, it feels very real to them. And they, there seems to be a strong correlation between what I see, what I think I'm doing and what they feel, which, you know, I mean, to have a little bit of magic in your life is, you know, can be wonderful. And then especially if it's based in also grounded in a philosophy and practice of paying attention as opposed to like telling a story, telling a narrative to like take over their life. I'm not like saying, oh, okay, here's the story of your life. This is what you're doing. This is what you have to go do. These things are out of balance with you because of this thing that happened in your life and this sort of thing. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but it's mostly just I'm paying attention. They're talking to me. I see things. I tell them what I'm seeing. I think of doing something in my mind. I do that. I ask them to give me feedback. And it's it's really this like feedback, this kind of, you know, back and forth thing. Um, I feel like whatever it is, it's a legitimate use of, of our time together. Um, but I don't advertise that I do anything. I don't tr impose anything on it. It's extremely open-ended in terms of what's happening and what I'm doing. I just say, this is what I see. This is what is going through my mind. And tell me, tell me what happens. How I do it, how I do it, I have... Does this know. tie in with the shamanic training? Yes. Does this tie... And I suspect it ties in yes. with a lot of time on the cushion as well. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, John Meyerson. So uh, he's... I actually got back in touch with him during quarantine, started kind of weekly. We, we've been working with each other in more of a mentorship than a doctor-patient relationship, which is more of what we had before. He's a trained psychotherapist as well as an acupuncturist, uh, martial arts master. And he co-founded the New England School of Acupuncture in 75 and was the guy that signed all of our acupuncture licenses for the Board of Medicine. He was uh, He's a very uh, interesting, wonderful guy, but he taught this three-hour class at NISA. And the most interesting thing about the class was that like, I couldn't not pay attention to him because there's something, some energy coming out of him that was beyond anything he was talking about that uh, was nothing like I'd ever experienced. And that's not something he talked about either. It's just something that I noticed. And so sitting with him, the the practice with him was I would go in, sit on the couch. It was, it was it, like from the outside, it looked like psychotherapy, but we weren't really talking about that much in terms of like what was going on with me. We talked about whatever, the weather. And then after about five, 10 minutes, like the air would change color 
and his face would start changing in other faces. And I couldn't, and then after that, like he would, then, then he would like, you know, say something really kind of spooky, like, okay, now we've begun. And then half an hour later, I'd be paying him and we'd be rescheduling. And so uh, what that did for me, it wasn't, he didn't give me some like, you know, he didn't tell me to go out and do these, all these different practices. It was some kind of uh, induction resonance, like a magnet next to a wire. He's like a giant, this electromagnet of energy and was just shaking things loose, just like moving my chi, just like clearing the channels. And what I found first was that all sorts of intuition, I started to really believe in, in my intuition much more. I didn't give up my thinking mind, right? But I just felt better about um, following or believing in intuitions I had. That translated into creative work um, in terms of like, you know, writing all sorts of things, but then it also translated into my acupuncture too. And I think that's kind of like his practice with me was um, allowing me to believe in whatever intuitions I was capable of to really honor them and see them, perceive them and, and, and believe in them. Um, but of course, I wasn't going to give up my skeptical mind. So I, I, I did, you know, resist in a lot of ways, the stuff that I would feel for a long time. But, you know, I would, so I'd approach it in small ways, like with the acupuncture, like, I didn't do this distance stuff for 15 years after I noticed I could perceive things at a distance, because I, I couldn't justify that to people, right? And I had to stay in the realm of the real. And I had to, so it informed what I did, but I still was really like from the outside, everything is just me sticking needles and people just like any other, other acupuncturist and palpating their spine to make sure that the actual real body is changing. But there was all sorts of other stuff that I was allowing myself to see that influenced what I did. I just didn't say that's what I was doing, you know. It seems to me that our perceptive senses do two things simultaneously. On one hand, it opens up a world to us. On the other hand, it makes us blind to everything that the senses can't touch. So it opens a world and it closes a world at the same time. And then you put mind in there. Now we've got stories about all this. We've got a name for something. Names are very, very useful. Especially when you're dealing with other human beings and especially when you're trying to pass along an idea or a concept. Names are super helpful, but they also, much like the perceptive senses themselves, they let you see a piece of what something is and they blind you to the rest of whatever it is or it might be. And it sounds like in this work that you've been doing, that membrane between what's named and what's unnameable, it's become semi-permeable. Right. Is the bird outside your window a bird or not a bird, right? Yeah. The bird I see outside the window, is it the same as the bird the cat sees? We're both sitting there together looking at it. Yeah. That moment where something goes from not being into being or being into not being, um, real into not real, not real into real, that's the moment you want to stay in as much as you can, right? That That is like the alive moment. And that is the place where things happen. It's like that hinge. It's uh, in Zhuangzi, not Lao Tzu, but I think it's Zhuangzi talks about this sort of like hinge or pivot. He has this cook that can butcher 
a pig and finds all the space in the joints and just moves through. And it's this like, it's the space between the joints. It's the space that you're going into. And this is this, this liminal space between where things are about to get solidified, you know, and so always trying to like find your way back to there. The moment where the bird is both a bird and not a bird. It's like the particle and the wave at the same time, but not, not, not either, not one, not two, you know, that's the place you're always trying to stay. And I think as much as you can stay in that, that space as possible, the, the more you can navigate through the, uh, the theories and practices and your intention and uh, your successes and also your failures uh, and making sense of it and, and turning it into, I mean, it's nice to have a narrative about it, but it's even better to have a, a practice and a direction because we can always tell ourselves stories, but it's what you do in the world that really matters. I think that's just a fine place to leave this for today. All right. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It's a great talk. As the prolific science fiction writer Isaac Asimov said, the most exciting phrase to hear in science, the one that heralds new discoveries, is not Eureka, but hmm. That's funny. When we notice something odd, when something disrupts the pattern of what we expect, even when we don't know what it means, and perhaps especially when we don't know what it means, there's an opportunity to learn something new. There's only so much that we can learn from books or other people. At a certain point, we need to attend to our experience and work out our own understanding. Next week, Show number 200. I am so grateful to all the practitioners who have shared their time and experience here on Sheological over the past three and a half years. Their perspectives and methods give us a glimpse into the richness and diversity of thought and practice that we call East Asian medicine. The guest of show number 200 is a student, and we'll be talking about learning, mentorship, and challenges and opportunities of the next generation of practitioners. The influence of East Asian medicine is here to stay in the West. I actually had a patient the other day refer to acupuncture as a mainstream modality. How about that? Hearing that rather set me back on my heels for a moment. The new practitioners of today, the new practitioners of today come into a vastly different world than those of us that started our practices in the 80s or 90s. Learning the medicine is one thing. How we unfold it into the world is an ever-changing opportunity and challenge. Tune in again next week, friends, for this 200th Geological Conversation. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.